Hello, and welcome to this Herbert Smith Freehills Brexit podcast. My name is Christopher Hunt, and I'm a partner in our Tokyo office. And I'm Michael McElaine, a senior associate in the disputes practice in Tokyo. Thanks very much for joining us again on our podcast series on Brexit from the perspective of Asian investors. What do you need to know? What do you need to think about? And what do you need to prepare for? In this episode, we're going to be discussing the draft withdrawal agreement and political declaration that were published last week, and the next steps to avoid a no-deal Brexit. We're recording this on the 29th of November, and so the usual caveats apply that this is a fast-moving area. Before we talk about what's happened recently and how it might affect you and your business, it's worth noting that clients in Japan and elsewhere in Asia are considering right now how Brexit might affect their business. So, as we've talked about in earlier podcasts, that includes things like reviewing contracts and licenses, and also thinking about supply chains, particularly in the case of a no-deal Brexit. This planning should be understood in the context of wider business sentiment. A Nikkei survey was published in Japan this week that revealed that 55% of surveyed Japanese companies felt that Brexit would have a negative impact on their European operations and 87% are still concerned about the likelihood of a no-deal Brexit. So with this in mind, let's look at where we are now and what it means. As a recap, the UK and the EU have until the 29th of March 2019 in order to reach agreement on how the UK will leave the EU and what the future relationship will look like. But if they don't reach an agreement, then that's the no-deal scenario you might have heard about. With this deadline in mind, there was progress last week uh, with the publication of a draft withdrawal agreement and a draft political declaration on the future relationship. Before we get into the detail of those documents, Michael, what's the difference between them? Uh, Thanks, Chris. Um, That's a a really important point, actually, because it often gets uh, lost in the media reporting when we hear talk of a Brexit deal. Um, Yes, there are actually two Uh, documents uh, in issue. The first uh, is the withdrawal agreement, and that's the agreement that governs the mechanics of the UK's exit from the EU, which will take place in four months' time on the 29th of March next year. Uh, And that sets out how the implementation period is is going to work. And the um, implementation period is is that transitional phase that will start uh, once the UK leaves the EU and ends, at least on the current schedule, uh, on the 31st of December 2020. Uh, and that is a period to allow businesses to adapt to the new regulatory regime uh, that the UK may introduce or to adapt to whatever uh, trade deals the UK is able to conclude with the EU uh, or other third parties. So the idea is that in this implementation period or transition period, as some people call it, that in 2019 and 2020, the UK and the EU are going to try to negotiate a free trade deal which takes effect after the transition period ends. Yes, that's right. That That's certainly the, the aspiration. Um, and whilst uh, we would hope that the process would certainly have started within the implementation period, uh, given that these types of agreements can take uh, many years to conclude, uh, it's probably quite optimistic uh, to, to hope that the deal would be concluded by the end of December 2020. Okay, so that's the uh, withdrawal agreement. And then we've also got a political declaration. 
Yes, that's right. That's a, a more forward-looking document um, compared to the withdrawal agreement, and that sets out um, a, a negotiation framework uh, for the scope of the future relationship between the UK and the EU uh, after the implementation period comes to an end, uh, and I'm sure we'll come on to talk about that in more detail. Okay, absolutely. So we've got the two documents. Um, what's in them? Uh, starting with the withdrawal agreement, this is... 584 pages long, including its annexes, and sets out some key points for how the UK will leave the EU. Now, this, uh, as you would expect in a document this long, covers many things, but in particular, it looks at citizens' rights, i.e. the ability for UK and EU citizens to have a degree of um, free movement um, of living, working, studying, uh, especially for those who are um, or particularly those who are currently in the EU or the UK. It's also going to cover events that will be ongoing at the end of the transition period. So in December 2020, if goods are already in the market at that point, they can continue to move around until they reach their end user. There's also going to be a commitment to ongoing judicial cooperation in various matters, and then there are lots of provisions dealing with how various EU bodies function and, and how their offices and agencies function and how what the impact of the UK withdrawal is going to be. Now, we've talked a lot, uh, including in, uh, in the first few minutes of this podcast, about this transition period, this period from March next year until December 2020. And the withdrawal agreement says that this could actually be extended um, it's not saying that it will be, but the option is there. Now, that's interesting because during this transition period, EU law continues to apply to the UK in more or less the same way that it does now. And as Michael mentioned earlier, it's uh, in this transition period, the UK can negotiate trade deals, but they can't take effect until after the transition period. So after EU law no longer applies. Then money, money is always important, and not least of which in this case, because there is a price tag associated with the UK leaving the EU to cover various financial liabilities which have accrued. Um, the withdrawal agreement doesn't set out the number, but it sets out how it would be calculated. Separately, this number has been reported as being £39 billion, which is about 50 billion US dollars. There are also a number of protocols dealing with some difficult issues, such as Gibraltar and Cyprus, where the UK has military forces, but none of the issues were as tricky as dealing with Northern Ireland, which is the only part of the UK which has a land border with the EU. So, Michael, um, you're our resident Northern Irishman. Um, there's been a lot of talk about a so-called backstop. What is that and why is it important? Uh, the, the backstop is essentially the arrangement that the uh, EU and the UK want uh, to avoid what they call a hard border between uh, Ireland and Northern Ireland, so between uh, on that land border between the UK and the EU. Uh, and that's in the event that the UK and EU are unable to reach an agreement on a free trade deal at the end of the implementation period. So this is a sort of a just-in-case mechanism. It might not be needed. Yes, that's right. Um, and the backstop um, is 
if there's no agreement, uh, that the UK uh, would remain essentially in a customs union uh, with the EU, um, which would essentially mean the UK continuing to comply with EU regulations and rules uh, so that um, uh, the UK wouldn't be able to get a competitive advantage compared to other EU countries with a, a an extra close alignment, if you will, between Northern Ireland uh, and the rest of the EU to allow that free movement of, of, of goods. So if this backstop comes into place, the UK stays a part of a customs union with the EU, and so that means that free trade of goods would continue? Uh, essentially, yes, that's right. Right, okay. And this, if this backstop arrangement kicks in, and um, when would it end? Is it clear? Uh, the uh, withdrawal agreement says that if, if the backstop kicks in, uh, it can be brought to an end by a um, committee uh, consisting of representatives from the UK and EU, uh, but it wouldn't be possible for either, um, either country to unilaterally end the backstop. Okay. But this this isn't just about goods and the border between Ireland and Northern Ireland. There are some bigger issues here which people in Asia might not have uh, a full appreciation for. Yes, that's that, that's right. Um, in, in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, there was significant um, uh, civil unrest within Northern Ireland uh, to do with the uh, constitutional question of whether Northern Ireland should uh, remain part of the United Kingdom or whether Northern Ireland should be uh, uh, part of the Republic of Ireland. Uh, and that um, really didn't come to an end until the uh, uh, what's called the Good Friday Agreement, uh, which was uh, concluded in 1997. And that uh, essentially provided for Northern Ireland to remain part of the United Kingdom, um, but with quite close and deep cooperation with the Republic of Ireland. Uh, and so I think the UK and the EU um, obviously don't want to see a return to, to those troubles. Uh, and so they, they are, uh, as a result, keen to avoid uh, anything that might um, uh, degrade that sort of mm. close north-south relationship. OK, so withdrawal agreement is complicated enough, but the political declarations in, in some ways might be... Um, well, uh, maybe even more interesting because it, it's forward-looking. And so I think that's probably one of the key differences between the political declaration and the withdrawal agreement. Yes, absolutely. But I think another one would be that it's it's not legally binding. That, that's right. The, the withdrawal agreement um, is, is uh, you, could, you could view it essentially as a treaty, a draft treaty between the, the UK and EU, um, whereas the uh, political declaration. It's a much shorter document. It's not drafted in the same way. It's 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 much more aspirational in its nature. Okay, so political declaration is just sort of setting out what the parties, the UK and the EU, would like to happen uh, in the future um, as between them when it comes to things like trade. Is there anything in this political declaration that's going to be of interest to Asian investors in the UK and Europe? Uh, well, that will ultimately depend on on the business that um, that you've invested in. Um, uh, I mean, to take one example, if your um, business is primarily driven by goods, so say you manufacture something in you in the UK and you're exporting it for sale um, in the EU, uh, then you're likely going to be interested in the 
the aspiration in, in the political declaration to negotiate a, a free trade area between the UK and the EU, um, which would um, have deep uh, regulatory and customs cooperation. Uh, and the political declaration talks about a free trade deal that would um, have no tariffs or, or fees or quantitative restrictions put in place, uh, and that would apply across all sectors, not a sector-specific deal. Okay. Um, I think that the people listening will be familiar with talk about tariffs. You see that in the media a lot with the US and China, and there's, there's a lot of talk about what that could mean. And tariffs have been mentioned with respect to the UK and the EU, but I think it's not just tariffs themselves, but there's also sort of so-called non-tariff barriers as well, which uh, things like regulations, which can get in the way of business, which I think the political declaration also looks at. Yes, that's right. Um, the, the UK and the EU have recognised that there are these non-tariff uh, barriers to trade, uh, and, and both um, blocks are... Uh, members of the WTO, which contain certain minimum obligations um, as to uh, non-tariff barriers to trade that you can put in place. Uh, and the UK and EU have said in the political declaration that they are um, committed to uh, concluding a, an agreement uh, that is um, beyond those minimum obligations. Okay, so that's goods. Goods only part of the story. We've also got services. British economy is... Um, the majority of the economy is uh, in services. So if, you've, if you're an investor, you're in Asia, you've got a business which operates in the services industry or relies on it, is there anything in this political declaration for them? The, the detail around the uh, future of supply of services between the UK and EU isn't um, perhaps as detailed as the position is on goods. Um, there is a general commitment in there for uh, uh, a liberal arrangement between the UK and EU on the supply of services. Um, what detail that is in there um, does look at the financial services industry, uh, which is um, perhaps not surprise, uh, uh, perhaps not surprising given uh, the importance of London in the in the world's financial markets, um, and uh, the passporting regime. So that's the current regime where a financial institution is. Uh, authorised to operate in one EU country and that allows it to operate in all EU countries, that will come to an end mm -hmm. on the 29th of March and will be replaced um, uh, if the UK and EU follow through on the um, political declaration with uh, um, equivalence assessments. Mm -hmm. um, and that would essentially put uh, British banks and financial institutions in the same position as American banks are today. Right. You mentioned the expression there, equivalence uh, provisions and assessments. That's also something which has come up with respect to data protection. Now, anyone who's uh, been in business or even has an email account would have been familiar with the EU regulation, the GDPR, which came into force in May this year. And I think that the uh, something interesting, which is coming out of these recent agreements uh, or documents, I should say, one agreement, one declaration, is that uh, there is a commitment to try and keep the data protection regulations more or less the same in the UK as they are in the EU. And I think that's going to be important to any company, whether they're in goods or whether they're in services, because of the nature of modern business and, and the flows of data that there are. So the EU is going to be performing an assessment 
to check at the end of the implementation period or transition period whether UK law matches up with the EU law or is equivalent with it, given that the GDPR just came in and the UK has followed it, and given that it would be a big burden on companies to have to follow two sets of data protection laws, uh, there's obviously the hope that uh, that's not going to be necessary and that the UK laws will broadly follow the EU ones. Okay, so that's the withdrawal agreement and the political declaration. Those have been agreed by the EU and the UK. So I take it this means a no-deal Brexit is not going to happen and we can all relax and stop talking about Brexit. That's going to happen, right? <laughs> if, if, if only. Um, unfortunately, that's not the case, Chris. Um, the, the Brexit deal, and that's both the withdrawal agreement and the political declaration, um, still face their, their toughest challenge in that they need to uh, survive a vote in the British Parliament. Uh, and that's currently expected to happen around the 11th of December. Okay, so that's about two weeks or so away. And so we should have a better idea of what's going on then. Um, so the Prime Minister, Theresa May, as we've talked about on earlier podcasts, she doesn't have a majority in Parliament with just her own party. Is she going to be able to get this deal passed? Uh, it's it's looking very finely balanced uh, at, at the moment. Um, the party that she currently relies on to achieve a majority in, in the House of Commons is a Northern Irish party called the Democratic Unionist Party. Um, and that uh, party has already come out and said that it does not support the um, current draft of the withdrawal agreement. And um, it's particularly upset with the uh, the backstop arrangements that we were talking about earlier. Um, there are also uh, a rebel uh politicians within the Conservative Party who feel that the deal uh, doesn't go far enough, doesn't deliver um, the Brexit that the people voted for in uh, in the referendum. Um, and similarly, there are those who think that the deal goes too far and that it puts uh, too, too large a gulf in the relations between the UK and, and the EU. And of course, you've also got the opposition parties as well. And, and yes, you've got You've got them as well. Okay, all right. So I think you're quite generous when you said it was finally balanced. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll see in a future episode whether she does get it through, but uh, she's certainly facing an uphill battle there. And I suppose the, the great unknown is if the deal doesn't pass in Parliament, what happens next? Um, various things have been speculated. One is that there would be another general election. One is that there would be some revision to the deal. Um, and that would be represented to Parliament. There's even been talk, not by the government, but the talk by some, that there could be another referendum. Anyway, that's all speculation for now. Um, we'll have to see how the uh, UK Parliament votes. So um, we're still in a wait-and-see mode, and I think this wait-and-see and uncertainty has really been something which has been affecting businesses since the time of the vote in June 2016, so two and a half years ago. And with that uncertainty in mind, we do get a lot of um, companies saying that they are making plans for what happens if there is going to be a no-deal Brexit, or just generally to check, whichever way it goes, how their businesses are going to be set up. So the kinds of things they're thinking about are, will they have any difficulties importing goods? Can they receive supplies smoothly? Are supplies in the EU, and if so, what would happen if there was no free movement of goods? Do companies have contracts or licenses that rely on the UK 
being part of the EU. So many different um, business considerations, which will affect different businesses in different ways. We often get asked, is it too late to start planning? And our answer is no, it isn't too late. Um, we suggest that uh, no matter what kind of business you're in, you take a three-step approach to Brexit assurance. And helpfully, they all begin with A, and that's analyze, assess, address. Analyze, so that's doing due diligence on your business to work out what would the impact be of a no-deal Brexit. Assess, so evaluating the conclusions that come out of your analysis and help you to put together some kind of Brexit readiness plan. And the final stage and the final A is address. And that means putting your plan into action. So that might involve reviewing existing contracts to see if they need to be amended or taking forward some kind of restructuring. Or maybe you've decided you don't need to do anything. So if you do have any questions about um, the three A's, analyze, assess, address, or anything in this podcast, then do feel free to contact us or any of your usual Herbert Smith Freehills contacts. In the meantime, that's all we have time for today. Thank you very much for listening. Please subscribe to receive further episodes and goodbye. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.